Man, we praise the Lord for our choir and the worship that has gone on thus far as we are reflecting this month on the history of Forest Baptist Church celebrating uh, the end of the month, 147 years. Amen. We praise God for Sister Trauber and uh, leading us in those, those wonderful, wonderful songs. Thank you. Amen. Amen. According to Richard Dawkins, the uh, best-selling author and anti-God evangelist, uh, he boldly proclaims, today the theory of evolution is as much open to doubt as the theory that the earth goes round the sun. He also says, it is absolutely safe to say that if you meet somebody who claims not to believe in evolution, that that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane, or wicked, but I'd rather not consider that. Amen. There are great questions, and uh, there are numerous of, of people who simply discount the story of the Bible, the opening words of Genesis, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there is a belief, a system of thinking called naturalism, which believes that the earth was started with some, some, some small uh, elements and, and grew over a long period of time to be uh, what we have today and to have uh, human beings as well as uh, the, the wonderful uh, organisms that exist. And what naturalism attempts to do, what evolution attempts to do, what, what Darwinism attempts to do, is to explain away the supernatural, to attack the Bible and Christian beliefs, and to create a system that explains how we came to be where we are, the human race in a natural world, without supernatural intervention. Again, Darwin argues that those who do not agree with evolution, that they are ignorant, stupid, or insane. Today we're going to uh, continue our series, The Questions That Christians Hope No One Will Ask, by looking at the question, didn't evolution put God out of a job? Didn't evolution put God out of a job? If you can stand with your Bibles in your hand and turn to Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to deal with this, this tough question, this question that uh, many in the Christian faith fear that someone will ask them, and we're going to, to, to look at that today and see uh, what the answer is. Genesis chapter 1 is absolutely masterfully written. It is written by Moses. Um, those who read and understand Hebrew are just absolutely uh, flabbergasted in awe with how well-written this is. If we're reading in the Hebrew, we'll see that there's a, a theme of perfection in Genesis chapter 1, as the number 7, which is the number that represents perfection, is constantly woven throughout this book. We can't uh, see that in the, the English translation, but it is, it is actually a, a masterpiece. And we're going to read... Uh, up until chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, 
we're not going to exposit or go verse by verse like we normally would do with Genesis chapter 1, but rather we're going to look at this chapter because it is the foundation of our Christian beliefs. It is, it is, it is the foundation of what we believe about how the world was formed. And we're going to kind of jump off that and, 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 and look at some, some foundational things that as Christians we must believe. And then we are going to uh, look at evolution. And we're going to examine why evolution did not put God out of a job. Amen? So Genesis chapter 1, what you hold in your hand is the very word of God. It's not a self-help book. It's not some neat little suggestions that was just put together by men. It was written by holy men under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So let's read it, and let's read it with confidence. Amen? The matchless, wonderful, and errant word of God reads, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. The darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, the fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to his own kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, and each according to his kind. And God saw that it was, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for season and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth and it was so and God made the two greater lights the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars and God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness and God saw that it was and there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves and with which the water swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was... And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas. Let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its time. And God saw that it it was. Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish and 
of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over the, all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And, and God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with the seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food to, and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth was finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the opportunity to call you Father. We cry out to you, Abba. We thank you, Father God, for the opportunity to just look at your word and to think on creation and, and how you've made the earth. Lord, truly you are great and greatly to be praised. Truly there's no one in the heavens, above the heavens. There's no one in the earth, below the earth. There's no one on your right or on your left. You are God and God all by yourself. You reign supreme. You are king of this universe. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to, to know you. Help us to rest in you, the God who speaks a word and it happens. This e eternal God who knows us and who loves us and who pursues us, who humbled himself by sending his son. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus and allowing him to de die the death that we deserve. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you have your way in this place? Father and Son, would you commission your spirit to move in this room. Speak, Lord. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Father, we are desperate for you. We need you. Creating us a clean heart and renewing us the right spirit. Hide me behind your cross, Lord. Guide my lips, Lord. Help me to trust you and to rest in you as I I speak, Lord, what you have, have placed on my heart and what your word says. In Jesus' name, amen. Didn't evolution put God out of a job? Well, we first want to start, uh, as we think about this subject, understanding that really the battle between science and religion it's really a battle for the beginning. It's really a battle for authority. It's a, it's a battle for who's in control and what is in control. And the answer to this question matters. 
Because if God did not create, if God did not make from the beginning, then we really don't have a, 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 a purpose. God is not in control. We don't have to submit to his authority. But if he did, then we do. And those who are anti-God, who are scientists, not every scientist is anti-God. Some scientists love Jesus. But those who are anti-God are, are those who want to take God completely out of the equation. And as Christians, it may be tempting for us to look at evolution. And when I say evolution, I'm speaking of macroevolution. The, the idea that uh, everything started from one origin, and from that one origin, every species that we, we have came, which is uh, anti-God, anti-biblical, because we see that God speaks different organisms to existence, and he actually creates man from the dust. But macroevolution is, is unbiblical. Microevolution, that, that, that organisms has small changes over a a long period of time and, and adapt and, and things of that sort, we, we affirm. But, but those who are anti-God, those who are, uh, are anti-God wants us to believe in evolution and Darwinism. In fact, Charles Darwin himself was a man who really came to a place of, of no hope. His family was Unitarian. He probably would have at one time called himself a Christian, though I don't believe Unitarians are Christians. But, but at his daughter, when his daughter was 10 years old, he lost a daughter. And she suffered a long, hard death. And it was around that time that he said words to this effect, that he, he said, I cannot understand how, if there is a God, how a God could allow suffering in this world. Suffering in this world. And a lot of times, we as human beings, we come to the conclusions that we come, especially those that are in error, because we don't have a right, right framework of theology. And that's why it's important for us as Christians to be aware of the Genesis narrative and to know why it's even here. Why is Genesis 1 here? Well, Moses wrote the book of Genesis, and he was writing it to Israel as they are exiting out of Egypt. And we want to understand that he's not writing it to the Israel, as they, the Jews, as they are uh, exiting out of Egypt because he wants them to understand uh, creationism versus evolution. <laughs> evolution wasn't, wasn't then, right? That's not why he's writing it. But why is he writing it? Why did he pen Genesis chapter 1? Well, first, we want to understand that Israel was probably wandering in the wilderness. And while they were wandering in the wilderness, they were probably afraid, fearful, about their future. They just left Egypt. They just left what was comfortable to them. They just left their, their gods. And there they worshiped the sun. They worshiped the moon. They, they, they worshiped all these other false gods. And, and God actually declared war on all their false gods. And that's where we see the 10 plagues in Exodus where God is literally defeating one God at a time. And now they're in the wilderness and these, these gods that they had worshipped, they're being defeated. They're being undone. And, and they don't have a framework for what creation truly was. And God gave Moses this vision and, and these words about creation and how the world came to be. So the first reason why Moses pens these words is, 
in order to fight against pagan mythologies. R. Kent Hughes, a, a wonderful theologian in his work, wrote this. It was a polemic against the pagan mythologies of the surrounding nations. Each day of creation attacks one of the gods in the pagan pantheons of the day and declares they are not gods at all. On day one, the gods of light and darkness are dismissed. On day two, the gods of sky and sea. On day three, the earth gods and the gods of vegetation. On day four, the sun, the moon, and the star gods. Days five and six dispense with the ideas of divinity within the animal kingdom. Finally, it is made clear that humans and humanity are not divine, while also teaching that all from the greatest to the least are made in the image of God. Thus, biblical reality replaced myth. So even when we look at the creation narrative, when we look at it on each day, how God is creating uh, uh, different things just by speaking it into existence, Israel, the, the Jews, would have uh, had their pagan religion completely being undone in their mind. They would have been learning that the sun is not a god. The sun was not even in, in Genesis, even given the title that Pegasus was using for the sun. He called it a greater light and a lesser light. So he's writing for that purpose. But second, I want to say that Moses masterfully tells this creation story in order to teach Israel about Yahweh, that he is the king of the universe who is powerful enough to create the world with his own words. So these other pagan gods are not God at all. There is one God. And his name is Yahweh. His name is the name that they should know. And he was powerful enough to create the universe with his words, and he is powerful enough to control the universe. Once he created matter, he organized matter. And matter was not to have victory over him. So we want to understand that as we're reading the Genesis narrative, it's not written to combat against evolution. Because what happens sometimes is maybe scientists or the people may read the Genesis narrative and say, well, if God did this, then why didn't Genesis deal with that? Or why is the Bible silent on that? Because that wasn't what the author was intending to do. He wasn't intending to prove that God created. He was simply stating the facts and the truth. God created. There are four things that can be drawn from this passage of Genesis chapter 1 that we as, as Christians need to believe. Number one, that God, the king of the universe, created the heavens and the earth. He created the heavens and the earth. The, the heavens and the earth wasn't created by uh, Murdoch uh, in, in uh, the ancient Babylon uh, creation epic, the Enuma Elish. It was created by God. And he did this his own way, and he did this ex nihilo. He did this out of nothing. That this eternal God who existed forever, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who was in forever in union with each other, in perfect union, who was experiencing each other's steadfast love towards each other, decided to create. And the psalmist tells us that he decided to create for his own glory. Psalm 19.1 tells us that, that the, the glory of the Lord is seen in creation. It is seen in his handiwork. But he created it out of nothing. He didn't have any materials. He just spoke material into being. Second, we learn, in fact, we read this. 
Paul declares in, in Romans 4, 17, to that effect, as the apostle, I'm sorry, he calls into existence the things that do not exist. Speaking of God, God calls into existence the things that do not exist. Hebrews 11 says, 11, 6 says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that were visible. So the things that we, we see made was not made out of things that was visible. Second, the king of the universe created most of his creation with his very word. And we've said that uh, already, but, but God simply speaks everything into existence. The phrase, and God said, is said over ten times in this passage. Seven times the author follows up with just simply saying, and it was so. And it was so. Third, the king of the universe created everything good and very good. Twenty-one times in this passage is that repeated. 21, of course, is a, uh, a multiplied three times, gives us seven three times to go along with what I talked about earlier, that theme of seven. The king of the universe created everything good and very good. In Genesis chapter 1, there's no sin. The earth is in perfect harmony. Everything is the way that God wants it to be. Fourth, the king of the universe created mankind special. And this is huge, and we'll come back at the end of our sermon to this and, and see why this is huge, that, that God created mankind special. Where he spoke mostly everything else, spoke everything else into existence, God gets personal when it comes to man. He doesn't just speak the animals, and, uh, he speaks the animals into existence, but, but God gets his holy hands, to use an anthropomorphic term. We know that God is a spirit. He uh, is not like mankind. He doesn't have physical hands. But he uses his hands and he gets in the dirt and he forms man and he breathes his ruach. He breathes his breath into us to signify that we are not just like animals. All right, Peter? All right, we, <laughs> there's something distinct about us, all right? <laughs> something distinct. He created mankind in this way. He created man to be special. And I'll just take a note here that he created man and woman already mature. They were already, it appears to be, adults. He created them to have an older look, to, 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 to be older and not as babies. In the same way as we even think about the earth and some of the argumentation that the world appears to be billions and billions of years old, uh, we, we cannot uh, negate the probability that the earth was created to appear older than it is. All right, so these are the basic things that we believe on creation, about creation, and that is spelled out in this narrative. And it's important to believe this because the Bible clearly says that God created the heavens and the earth. And if we start off as Christians, if we undermine the creation narrative, the first two chapters in the Bible, then we really can't trust the Bible. If the first two chapters in the Bible is not true, then why should we trust anything else? As one author put it, typically critics of the Bible will focus their attacks on the first 11 chapters of Genesis, in particular the creation account. The question is why the first 11 chapters of Genesis is, it sets the stage for the rest of the biblical story. 
You can't understand the unfolding narrative of Scripture without Genesis chapter 1 through 11. There is so much foundational material in these chapters for the rest of the Bible. Creation, the fall, sin, and certainty of judgment, the necessity of a Savior, and the introduction of the gospel. To ignore these foundational doctrines would render the rest of the Bible as unintelligible and irrelevant. So I want to encourage those who are here who say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe in the creation account, or I'm a theistic, uh, I believe in a theistic evolution that God uh, created matter, and, and then after that, it's pretty much a Darwin's theory of evolution after that. I just want to say that you are, you are playing a dangerous game. Playing a, a dangerous game if you, if you don't take uh, the scriptures as is, and if you're trying to allow science to guide what you believe about creation first rather than the Bible, rather than the Bible. Now, Christians do disagree on matters of creation. Some believe that the earth is uh, young earth theory, that the earth is younger. Others believe in the old earth theory, that the, the, the earth is actually older uh, than it is. And some believe in things called the gap theory and all those. And some of those different theories, if you don't hold to uh, maybe as, an, as literal of a read of Genesis chapter 1 are okay, but there are others that are, that are really dangerous. And anything that tries to mythicize uh, the historical Adam or Eve is dangerous. It's dangerous. Well, let's, let's look at this question specifically really quick. Reasons why evolution didn't put God out of a job. First reason is because evolution can't account for matter and how it got here. So just from, from the get-go, we're not even going to get deep into uh, uh, specific arguments of evolution. We're not really going to get off, off the ground. We're going to look at, even before we, we consider evolution, some very simple things that make evolution come into question. And the reason that we can trust the Bible over evolution. And the first three points, I lean heavily on Mark Middleberg's work, which we named the series out of. But why evolution didn't put God out of a job? Because evolution can't account for matter and how it got here. Where did matter come from? How did it get here? Middleberg says, in the beginning... This is, a, this is what evolutionists want us to believe. This is what our uh, public school teachers, science teachers, many of them want you to believe. This is what's propagated in a secular society. That Middleburg says that uh, some, some of their beliefs up. In the beginning, the stuff was already here, the heavens and the earth, and the stuff rattled around, bumping into itself. And over eons of time, it ultimately got its act together, randomly, without cause or purpose, or outside help of any kind, it arranged itself into the exact elements and order necessarily, necessary to cause self-replicating and upwardly evolving life to suddenly leap into existence. So just stuff was already here and just bumped into each other. And everything just fell perfectly into order. Elaine Howard Uckland a sociologist at Rice University wrote a book called Science Versus Religion. What scientists really think, Uckland surveyed nearly 1,700 scientists and interviewed 275 of them. And she uh, surveyed and interviewed some of the most elite scientists. And, and what she learned is, is that those who believe in evolution is kind of uh, bullying their, their way through this topic. Those who are in academic settings, 
oftentimes marginalized Christians um, who believe in, in science but also believe in creation where they're not allowed to write in journals and other things. But, but there's also this, 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 this idea, this picture that those who are uh, true scientists don't believe in creation by God. True scientists don't believe in creation. And what her study found is that 50% of the scientists that she talked to, of the 1,700 scientists, actually believed in religion and believed in God. 50%. But the secular media and secular education will make us think that no true scientist can believe in it. Alan Sandich, who is regarded by many as the world's greatest observational cosmologist, said, the Big Bang was a supernatural event that cannot be explained within the realm of physics as we know it. Supernatural. Well, you know, he's holding on to the idea of a Big Bang. He's saying, yeah, it was a Big Bang, but it, it wasn't just merely a uh, physics. <laughs> Something supernatural had to happen. Second, the first reason we believe evolution didn't put God out of a job is because evolution can't account for matter and how it get, got here. So where, where did it come from? Where did this stuff that was just out there come from? Something had to create it. Second, because evolution can't answer how did life originate in the first place. So not just matter, but how did life come about? There's this theory, and I read, it, read about it, and it's absolutely crazy. It's called uh, panspermia, okay? Panspermia. What panspermia is, it's a belief in a theory that many scientists hold on to. When they're asked and pushed, how did life come about on the earth? This is what they say. They say life originated on the earth because aliens came out of somewhere and planted the seeds for life. <laughs> Richard Dawkins, who called us ignorant and wicked, and the quote that I started with, actually promotes this belief. <laughs> See, the issue is this. The issue is that many scientists, uh, especially anti-God scientists, understand that if they say that there is a God who created the universe, if there is an intelligent designer, if creation was intentional, that that means that he has authority. That means that mankind can no longer just make the rules and go along as he feels. So they're willing, some are willing to believe that aliens, I don't know, where did the aliens come from? We have no idea. But planet life, and it came into being. Dawkins said this on, uh, <laughs> propagated panspermia on uh, an interview in a movie that Ben Stein made called Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed. No Intelligence Allowed. Here's one quote by a man named Stephen Meyer, who is a Cambridge-trained philosopher of science, as he's going to help us to see the major problem with naturalism or uh, evolutionary thought. He says this, consider what you need for life or for a protein, a protein molecule to form by chance. First, you need the right bonds between amino acids. Second, Amino acids come in right-handed and left-handed versions, and you've got 
to get only left-handed ones. Third, the amino acids must link up in a specified sequence, like letters in a sentence. Run the odds of these things falling into place on their own, and you find that the probabilities of forming a rather short functional, just protein at random, would be one chance in a hundred thousand Trillion, 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 trillion years. That's a 10 with 125 zeros after it. And that will only be one protein molecule. A minimally complex cell would need between 300 and 500 protein molecules. It all just happened by chance. Now, I'm not a bad man, but if the odds of me hitting the lottery is, <laughs> what is this, <laughs> 10 trillion <laughs> times, I'm not going to place that bet, amen? But that is the odds of a single protein molecule, one, being formed in the way that it's formed, by chance. Third, because evolution can't answer who wrote the information, instruction, and DNAs. As we said before, uh, protein molecules are created very specifically, very intimately, in the same way a DNA strand is. Francis Collins calls it the, the DNA recipe. And he and a team led a study called the Human Genome Project. You can Google it and look it up. It's some fascinating things uh, that I, I recently learned about. And Collins described the information contained in our DNA like this. He says, this newly revealed text was four billion letters long and written in a strange and chirographic four-letter coed such as an amazing complexity of information carried within each cell of the human body, that a live reading of that code at a rate of three letters per second would take 31 years. Even if reading continued day and night, printing these letters out in regular font size on a normal bound paper and binding them all together would result in a tower the height of wa the Washington Monument. For the first time on the summer morning, this amazing script, crying within all its instruction for building a human being, was available to the world. And Collins was so amazed at what he found about the complexity of a single DNA strand that he termed it this way. He actually named a book, his book after it called The Language of God. He said, built into one single DNA is a language that is so complex and so intentional that only God can write it. So are we going to believe that matter, that chance of all this stuff, excuse my unscientific language, just bumped into each other and over billions of years just created this complexity and, and beautiful world that we have? Are we going to really slap God in the face and take out a supernatural element? Fourth. This is going to be short. It's the fourth, fourth reason why 
evolution has not put God out of a job. Y'all ready? Because evolution, naturalism, technically isn't true science. All right? It technically isn't true science. And this is what I mean. True science is built upon observation. It's built upon observation. So when people say it's science versus religion, and it's all about the the battle for the beginning, we want to understand that they're religious as well. Because what they're propagating and promoting is not true science. In order for it to be true science, someone had to be there in the beginning to observe what happened. So they are placing their faith in evolution, and we're placing our faith in God. They're placing their faith in naturalism. And we're placing our faith in a triune God who was on display in the very beginning in Elohim, the one who created the heavens and earth. And I'll tell you something. It takes more faith to believe in evolution than it does to believe in God the creator. (laughs) Because again, they can't answer where matter comes from. And once the matter was there and, and, and it bumped into each other, how it started life. One theologian said that the chances of evolution being true or this idea of naturalism being true is, is like a tornado going through a junkyard and perfectly creating a 747 Boeing airplane out of a junkyard. Love what John MacArthur said in his book, Battle for the Beginning. Dogmatic belief in any naturalistic theory is no more scientific than any other kind of religious faith. Fifth and finally, because evolution ultimately leads us purposeless and hopeless. Evolution is not putting God out of a job because at the end of the day, it leaves us hopeless. There's a guy by the name of Carl Sagan, perhaps the best-known scientific celebrity of the uh, past four decades, a renowned astronomer and a media figure. Sagan was overtly antagonistic to biblical theism or the biblical idea that God created. He taught that everything in the universe has a natural cause, a natural explanation. In December 1996, Less than three weeks before Sagan died, he was interviewed by Ted uh, Koppel on Nightline. And Koppel asked him this, Dr. Sagan, do you have any pearls of wisdom that you would like to give the human race? Any pearls of of wisdom? You naturalist, you evolutionist. Sagan replied, I added that, he didn't say that to him, amen. We live on a hunk of rock and metal that that circles a humdrum star that is one of four billion other stars that make up the Milky Way galaxy, which is one of billions of other galaxies which make up the universe, which may be one of a very large number, perhaps an infinite number of other universes. That is a perspective on human life and our culture that is well worth pondering. Then in a book published near the end of his life, he says, our planet is a lonely speck in the great 
enveloping cosmic dark, and our obscurity, and all this vastness, there is no hint that help would come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. His perspective says the earth is just one speck in, a, in an ocean of galaxies over 400 billion, and there's no help for us. We're just here. And ultimately, that's, that's where evolution, that's where naturalism leads. It leads to hopelessness because it doesn't answer the question of purpose. Why are we here? Why were we created? Why is mankind at the, the, the top of the food chain, so to speak? Why is the galaxy, why are there billions of galaxies? What's, what's the purpose? Someone who is anti-God and who is trying to explain things in a naturalistic way, at the end of the day, it's like it was all an accident. Were you an accident? That's depressing. Not only that, when we look throughout history and we study those who, who believe in this and, and systems and, 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 and trains of thought, we see that some of the, the most murderous people some of the most egregious regiments were able to do what they did because they believed this. They, they believed in Nietzsche's philosophy of the superhuman race of, of evolution, which, which basically teaches us that only the strong will survive. This is the heartbeat of, of racism. That all men were not created equal and in the image of God that there are some races that are stronger than others, that are smarter than others, and they deserve to be served and to be in power. That's not what we believe. That's not what we believe. We believe in the Bible. We believe that help has come in the person of Jesus who affirmed the creation narrative. We believe that help has come through God, who not only created the universe and, and formed it to be good and very good, but, but that when humankind rebelled against him in the garden, who did not destroy his creation even though he had every right to, but who even in the garden covered his creation with the sacrifice of an animal because God is a God of sacrifice. And this God, who is a God of sacrifice, allowed mankind, even though we broke her, his heart repeatedly by rebelling against him, by not giving him glory, which was the reason that we were created for, by, by not spreading his kingdom forth, that this God, rather than sit in heaven and rather than in wrath destroy everyone, chose to save some and, and sent his son Jesus into the world. And Jesus, who was fully human yet fully man, clothed himself in humanity. One theologian says that Jesus becoming a man is equivalent to a man becoming a roach. He who knew no sin, 
became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God, that we might know forgiveness of sin and be reconciled to the Father, that we might live under his authority and his kingdom, that we might spread forth a love that is eternal, a love that is merciful, a love that forgives, a love that is motivated by grace. There is a purpose to life. And that purpose is that you may know the creator of life and that you would come into this this sacred dance with with him and that you will be filled with an overwhelming love and that you would spend eternity with him in heaven. And the only way that that's possible is if you confess that you are a sinner, confess that you are not wise in your own strength, Confess that you would never run after God if it was not for him running after you. And turn and trust Jesus. You know, the the Bible says in Psalm 14, verse 1, that a fool says in his heart that there is no God. The Bible proclaims that there is no person who will be able to have an excuse because of creation and the invisible qualities of God, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. There's no excuse for anyone not to put their faith in God, not to cry out to God, because when we look at creation and we look at the vastness, when we think about how earth is made and how it's spinning on an invisible axis, when we think about the complexity of the universe and black holes and when we, when we look at a whale and when we look at a shark and we look at a, a sawfish, that it should lead us to say this was intentional. And only a fool, the Bible says, will conclude that it's not. Now, when the Bible says a fool, it does not mean an unintelligent person. Fool is not unintelligent. A fool, according to Proverbs, is one who chooses not to fear God. You can have the highest IQ in the world. You can be able to put with those little smart blocks together where you get all the colors. You can be able to go to Crackle Barrel and play with the little, you know, triangle thing. You can do all that. But if you do not acknowledge that the earth has a creator and that he is the king of the universe, you are, according to the Bible, with all your knowledge, you are fools. And let me tell you something. God specializes in taking taking the wisdom of man and making it look foolish. He did that on the cross. Those who thought that they knew God, but who rejected Jesus, those who were the spiritual leaders of the day, but who did not truly have the heart of God, they were dumbfounded at the way God came as a man from Nazareth. And that he died in order that we would have life. Don't be foolish. Trust the Lord. Proverbs 1 and 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Got a picture that we want to put up. Somebody tell me what this is a picture of. The Washington Monument, right? No. As we look at this picture of Mount Rushmore, or even if we look at the Washington Monument, no one in their right mind will look at this creation, look at this mountain, and say it happened by chance. 
We say, no, someone created that. Look how well it's created. When you think about the earth and the world and its complexity and what it takes to sustain life on the earth. Though we may say, someone may say with their lips that that God did not create it, the Bible tells us in Romans 1 that we know it's true that there's an intelligent designer, that there's a God who created it. And what we do is we suppress the truth because we choose to worship other gods, namely ourselves. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, creator and king. Not only are you the creator and king and authority of the universe, you are wise and you are loving. We rejoice in that fact because, God, you you could be the creator of all things and not be loving and not be generous and not be long-suffering, and not be patient, but you are. You're immutable, you're unchanging. That would always be the case, and we worship you. We pray for those here today who may be struggling with believing by faith in you. Maybe they're putting their faith in science. I pray, Father God, that you would draw them to the truth of your word. Pray for us as Christians as we talk to people about this matter that you will allow us to to have humility and allow us, even though it sounds strange, to say that there's a creator that is invisible who created all things. And there's a savior who we cannot see with our eyes that's coming back again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.